Uh, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that the power of your spirit would help us not just to hear the words and not even just the meaning in our minds, but Lord, that you would speak to us. And Holy Spirit, that you would open our spiritual senses to what you're saying. Give us the courage to follow what it is you're saying, to trust you. Amen. Human beings are absolutely amazing creatures. Our minds are able to synthesize information to such a degree that even supercomputers are jealous. Uh, well, they're getting closer, but still, we've got the upper hand. Um, our ability to solve complex problems has enabled us to put people on the moon and harness the power of the atom to heal diseases, even to come up with the cure of the novel coronavirus in record time. It's an amazing feat of, of ingenuity. Humans not only have the ability to depict natural beauty like we do in, say, paintings or, or, or drawings or in sculpture, but humans also have the ability to create uh, cultures and uh, evoke emotion and, um, and create story. That's my favorite thing, I think, is, is that we create story. After all, life is a narrative. Life Sorry, science people, like life is not a spreadsheet. <laughs> it's not a static picture. Life is, is dynamic. It is a story. That's probably why as a species, human beings love stories. Cross-culturally, cross time, doesn't matter what, how old you are, we love stories. In the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through, it's a wonderful story, a true story about Jesus, the Son of Christ, uh, the, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And during the season of Lent, we have been focusing on the part of the story where Jesus is heading to the cross. As I talked about last week, Mark, uh, in his gospel, he's, he's gone pretty fast, three years up until about chapter 8, chapter 9, and then it slows down. The focus is in. And now, in, in chapter 14, we're in the last couple of days of Jesus' life before he's resurrected. As I was reading and praying through the text this week, Mark 14, 26 through 42, I was struck by the recurring theme of keeping watch, staying alert in a world of distractions, siren calls, and temptation to escapism. My mind wandered to the classic trope, my mind wandered, there, I didn't even think about that, but yes, see, my mind wandered, but thankfully it was constructive, it was about the sermon. My, my mind wandered to the classic trope that's replayed in so many different stories uh, throughout history of, of how human beings struggle to stay alert. Odysseus lashes himself to the mast, plugs his crew's ears as they go by the island with the sirens. All oh, the sirens look so beautiful and their voices are so inviting, but he knows that that distraction would destroy them and set their quest aside. In The Hobbit, you have this fellowship of dwarves and Bilbo Baggins. They're going to go through Mirkwood and they're instructed, do not stray from the path. It's enchanted. You will, be, you will lose your way. And of course, somebody gets water and they almost lose the whole quest. And these tropes, you can find them everywhere. Think of the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy and the Poppies. Or think of C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. Uh, these, these, these tropes and all of these stories about how easy it is for us to be deluded, to lose our way, to take our mind 
off of what is important. For all the glories of the human mind, we are so easily distracted and our focus easily blurred. As we enter to the, into the story of Jesus tonight, let's pay attention to the theme of keeping watch. To set the scene, Jesus has just eaten the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's declared to them that one of them is going to betray him. Here's how the story goes from there on. After singing a hymn, they went up to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now Peter said to him, even though everyone else will fall away, I won't. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. They came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled within. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He went a little further beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible that the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, their eyes very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus has had the Last Supper. He now leads the 11 disciples You'll see in a later passage in the weeks to come that Judas has at some point slipped out. He's got the 11 and he brings them up to the Mount of Olives and on his way they're singing hymns, it says. And probably they're singing the Hallel Psalms. Um, that was the, the uh, traditional Psalms you would sing during the Passover season, which this was. And you can find those Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118 are the Halal Psalms. And actually we just sang that wonderful song, Hallelujah. Uh, that's where that Halal comes from. Uh, root for hallelujah, so praise Psalms. Anyway, Jesus declares that all of them are going to fall away. And he quotes the prophet Zechariah saying, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, 
you got to be a little bit kind of offended, right? Like nobody likes to let anybody else down. And you really don't want to let down people that you look up to, your mentors, your teachers, your Lord. Um, nobody wants to, to be known as a person who lets people down. And so Peter then blurts out in the company, by the way, of the other 10 friends of his, even if these guys like leave you, I won't ever leave you, right? And is Zoe Wasserman here? Uh, she does the best side eye. Um, but like, I'm guessing that they were like major side eye, like death stare, um, because he's basically saying like, even if these dudes chicken out, Lord, like I've got your back, like right in front of them. Kind of a you know, jerk move. But of course, Jesus knows human nature, and he somehow knows that, uh, that even Peter will fail him in the moment of need. And so Jesus says, you know, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, you're going to deny me, not once, but three times, Peter. Peter doubles down, of course, as you would do, um, declaring his, with his best intentions that, no, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then Mark, in his narrator's voice, tells us that they all, the other disciples as well, they all said the same exact thing. So they're all in this together. Now, most of us, I think, can relate. Like, think about your life. All the times you had good intentions, uh, noble aspirations, whether it's loyalty to a person or trying to form maybe healthy habits of of, of, of healthy habits of thinking or healthy habits of behaving. And our good intentions really only get us so far because in order to succeed, we need to stay alert, to keep watch, and to persevere. Now, in the main part of this story, Jesus takes the disciples up to the, uh, the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he instructs them to stay put, right? Uh, stay here until I'm done praying. Uh, but then he takes Peter and James and John, he takes them further into the garden, and he confides in these three, and he says, my soul is deeply grieved within me to the point of death. Remain here with me, guys. Keep watch with me, right? He goes just a little bit further, seeking some time to be alone, and he's so distressed that we learn he falls. Like, he, he just collapses under the weight of it all. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In this moment, in the Gospel of Mark, we see something we haven't really seen before. Jesus has always been in control of the situation, even when he's under persecution, under attack, and in raging storms and not enough food. I mean, Jesus just handles it. But here, Jesus is breaking down. It's not so much, I think, that Jesus is afraid of dying. It's that this death, this sacrificial death, would mean bearing the sin of the world. Every person's sin, all at once, for all time. Every warped social structure in the world, every corrupt political practice, every word, deed, or thought committed against God or committed against neighbor. Every blessing of God that was withheld from us, every blessing of our neighbor that we withhold, that's a sin as well. All of that would fall on Jesus. 
and crush him and kill him. Jesus, who had never sinned, would become sin for every one of us. And the cup that he asked to be removed is symbolic. It's the cup of judgment, a, a reference used numerous times throughout the scriptures. I think that's what he's afraid of. That's what he's anxious about. That's what causes him to sweat blood, as the gospel writer Luke describes in his account of the story. And that is what motivates Jesus to fall onto the ground and to beg of the Father in heaven to let that cup pass from him. This is no mythology or morality tale. This story is so important to us as the church because it tells us what Jesus is like. And that means it tells us what God is like. In fact, this story that shows Jesus' weakness, you know, early opponents of Christianity would use this story to say, like, you guys are so stupid. Who would worship a God like this? Gods aren't supposed to be weak. Gods aren't supposed to beg for mercy. Gods are stoic. Gods are impassionate. Gods don't get involved. Gods are perfect from a Greek or Roman perspective. And in fact, this sort of apparent weakness of Jesus in the Bible caused a lot of Christians um, to be embarrassed by it. And so you actually get Christian heresies to try and explain it away, right? So you, you get Apollinarianism, uh, or, I mean, Ar Arianism, right? Which is this, this idea that... Um, that's popularized probably most in your mind by Jehovah Witnesses who would say that, um, that Jesus was an incredible human being, like the best human being ever, but he wasn't the son of God, right? That's Arianism. Or you get the opposite in Apollinarianism, which is, which is Jesus was divine, but he was only pretending to be human. And so he does these things, these shows of weakness to pretend to be human, to identify with. And then you've got Nestorianism, which is, which is the false claim that Jesus was some sort of walking dualism. Um, the way I imagine it with like a sci-fi mind is like he's got some super symbiote in him, like, like venom or something, right? So he's, he's just a dude, and then the Holy Spirit came on him, and it's sort of like this super parasite. So he's actually two beings, a split nature, a, a walking dualism. And these, these three movements were declared heresies. And by the way, you see them cropping up over and over again, even in modern days, right? But these three uh, movements were called heresies because they failed to take the biblical account seriously. They start with an embarrassment or with philosophy, and they say, like, this doesn't make sense. Let's make up a story or, or, or an ism to explain Jesus because this doesn't sit well with us. But when you actually read the biblical story, which is messy and often gray, you get the God-man who suffers and is weak. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the God-man, that he's God in the flesh, that he's somehow fully God and fully human. And before his resurrection, he was vulnerable to all the things that humans like us are vulnerable to. And that means that Jesus truly, not just intellectually, but truly, can identify with you and me. It means he really was so distressed that he felt crushed. When you're carrying great stress and great anxiety, 
Jesus knows more than just conceptually. He's experienced that. Can walk with you in that. Jesus knows what it is to be depressed. He, he knows what it is to feel alone. Jesus knows what it is to feel afraid. Jesus knows, knows what it is to feel tempted. It's no random chance, I think, that Peter, James, and John were with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountaintop, hearing the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They saw Jesus glowing on the mountaintop. This dude is God, right? This is the Messiah. Then it's those same three men who see him on his knees, begging for mercy, weeping. The same person, the same person. These three witnesses hold the true Jesus together in tension. Our God is one who emptied himself and became human to be with us. Our God is not distant, he's not unfeeling, he's not unconcerned. He identifies with us. And those are weakness. And he experienced the weakness of his friends too. The scriptures say that after that first prayer, he went over to his friends and he found them sleeping. And we might read that and imagine that they were, you know, sleeping, like snoring or, you know, all huddled together. And that might be true. But that word is not so narrowly defined as literally like delta rem sleep, right? It it can also mean like it does in English, uh, have some other nuances. So you might say like somebody who's spacing out, like you're talking to them and they're just like, you're like, um, wake up, where are you? And they're not actually asleep, they're just not paying attention. Or you might say that person was just asleep at the wheel. Uh, meaning they're just going through the motions. They're not actually asleep at the wheel, right? So, so there's some nuance there to how this is, is worded. And so these disciples, you know, they could have been asleep, but they could have also just been not aware of the situation that they were in, not taking seriously the moment that they, that they were in. You know, to them... It might have sounded like a peaceful night on the Mount of Olives. We sang a hymn up to the Mount. Jesus has taken us here before. A lot of scholars believe this was probably a common spot that Jesus would go and, and do the Passover and their, their little spot, him and his disciples. That's how Judas knew to find them there later on, right? So, so the disciples are there and they've seen Jesus handle so many issues in their life. I mean, ah, he's got this. He's got this. He's having a moment. We'll just chill out. No need to really keep watch or stay awake. We'll just chill out over here. What they didn't realize, though, is that spiritual forces had conspired to to marshal the religious and political groups against them. That that these spiritual forces, and John's gospel is explicit, Satan entered Judas and turned his heart against the Lord and against the disciples, right? They, 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 they didn't know. They weren't aware. They weren't keeping watch of, of the bigger picture of what was going on. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me even for an hour? Keep watching. Keep praying that you may not come into temptation. Spirit is willing. Flesh is weak. Three times Jesus prays, three times he comes back, and the disciples are not aware. They're not keeping watch. And I think that that's a theme worth exploring. I'm going to focus on five aspects of keeping watch from here on out. And the place I want to start is the place of prayer. 
how is it that Jesus is able to stay focused when I'm sure he'd rather be doing anything else than thinking about being betrayed, thinking about being arrested, thinking about being crucified? I think the way he does that, the way he keeps watch, is he brings his real life to the Father in prayer. Notice what is absent in Jesus' prayer. He's not overly formal. He's not calculated. He doesn't get super spiritual, right? He's real. Jesus addresses God as Abba, Father. He comes to God not as a distant being who needs to be buttered up before you can approach him or you know, some special sacrifice we've got to do before we can talk to God. He comes right to God as he would an intimate friend. And you might be thinking, well, that's Jesus. <laughs> I can't do that. Well, remember that Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. Those of us in Christ, like we, just have, we have direct access to God. It's, it's amazing. So don't, don't disqualify yourself. Sometimes people think that they can't be real with God and that we have to approach prayer with only spiritual requests. I'm not even sure exactly what that means. Maybe you think, I can only pray about things that are super holy, right? Or like churchy things or the soul things. But like, oh, heaven forbid I ask about, you know, finances or, 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 or job stress or anything like that. Like, oh, it's just got to be super spiritual and stained glass. But you know, when we think about prayer like that, all it does is it creates two realities. It's like our real life is repressed. And, and then we pause, uh, we, we, we put our real life on pause, we sleep to it. And, and, and then we come to, to Jesus in prayer with some sort of other life that doesn't really associate with reality. So let's keep watch. Let's stay awake by bringing ourselves, our real selves our real pain and frustration, our real fear, our real joy, our actual desires. It's okay to bring our quirkiness to the Lord. That's prayer, honest prayer. He loves us. The second thing we can do uh, to stay awake is by keeping watch on our lives. Like keeping watch on our lives. Jesus said that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. This isn't a sort of dualism or a battle between like a spirit of ours and then our bodies. It's not a dualism like that. Human beings are embodied spirits. It's how we were made from Genesis 1. Always, we were designed that way. We are embodied spirits. We are integrated beings. You can't parse out the parts, right? So when Jesus is speaking of the flesh, he isn't referring to the soma or the body. Uh, He isn't referring to the thing that makes us physical, as if that was bad and the spirit was good. He's referring the flesh in the Bible is often a way to speak about that which pulls us away from the will of God, right? So in our flesh, our flesh is that which pulls us toward things like overconsumption and selfishness and addiction and escapism, and that type of thing. I think we sort of understand what Jesus says, when he, what he means when he says that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. But I, I kind of want to just put a modern twist on that, because I've been thinking about it, and I think this is the same thing. I actually think that the flesh is very strong. I think that the flesh is stubborn. 
I think it's a big baby that digs its heels in, right? Like, I want to be more disciplined in my prayer life. Anyone want that in your own life? But my phone pulls me, my, my flesh pulls me toward my phone. And I'm, that's just not an example. Chris Eldridge's flesh pulls him towards his phone. Like, anyone else relate to that? Like, it's just there, it's a thing. Ah! Got to put it in another room. Um, I want to get more exercise and take care of my body, but my flesh is trained. I've trained it to seek comfort and ease. I want to eat better, but my flesh is stubbornly fixed on fat, salt, and sugar. Oh, the great trinity of food. It's not that I don't have control. It's that I've allowed my flesh to have control for so long, it's now habitual. You see what I'm saying? The flesh is strong. It's stubborn. I've created a habit monster. Do you know what I mean? You have a habit monster? Right? Keeping watch over our bodies is nothing new. The ancient Christian disciplines of moderation and fasting, periodic abstinence from good things, just to be sure that they don't become our masters, these are all like very old ways that followers of Jesus have employed to, um, to make sure that the flesh isn't their master, right? Um, these are the practices of someone who keeps watch. Keeping, um, or I'm sorry, the goal of keeping watch over our lives is that our bodies would be trained to do the will of God and not cave to the whims of the flesh. The goal is that our minds would be used to thinking positively, truthfully, that our minds would be used to dwelling on beauty and goodness so that our thoughts serve the way of God and the will of God. During this season of Lent, might Jesus be inviting you to keep watch over your thought life or over your body or over your habits in a new way? Third, keeping watch involves paying attention to the world. The world, culture, Politics, economy, recreation, it's not neutral. It's never neutral. The world is not a neutral place. There are forces ever at work behind the scenes. And the mistake, I think, of Peter and the disciples is that they assumed that their struggle was only what they could see, only what they could sense with their five senses. Um, they assumed that that their struggle was only what they could control. They thought they were safe up there on the mountaintop. They thought they were untouchable since Jesus was with them. They assumed, hey, everything is going well. Jesus had said some weird things, but like he's with us and we just had this great meal and we're singing a psalm. It's Passover, it's the greatest time. What could go wrong? What they didn't realize, right, is that there's dark forces at work. Jesus had been speaking about his upcoming betrayal and death, like, out in the open, and they just chose not to keep watch on those statements. They chose to see only what they wanted to see, and we do this all the time, don't we? Jesus spoke of a betrayer at the Last Supper, 
And yeah, Judas was acting sort of weird. And in fact, where is he? They didn't even notice he was gone. Were they asleep spiritually? Gen Xers will know um, the Rage Against the Machine song, Wake Up, right? Um, maybe not Gen X too, great song. But anyway, uh, it, 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 it encourages us to like pay attention to the world, to the political landscape, to things going on. Like things are not just what they look like on the surface. We need the encouragement um, uh, uh, to, to, to pay attention to what's going on in the political world, in the cultural world, in, in the economic world, all, all of these systems around us, none of them are neutral. And, and this doesn't mean that, that we become uh, culture warriors, but it means that, wow, we don't have control over so much. Let's bring it to the Lord in prayer. Let's beseech the one who does have the control. That's what keeping watch could look like. Watch over the world. And fourth, keeping watch involves keeping community. Jesus, in his great hour of need, reached out to his friends for help. It's nearly impossible to watch, to stay vigilant on our own. I, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I, there's no way. We need the encouragement of the Christian community. We need the gathering of God's people uh, to regularly gather for worship and for prayer, for scripture and sacrament, shared meals together, shared burdens together, and to serve and to play together. That's how we can keep watch and encourage one another and to pull in the same direction. How might Jesus... Be inviting you to keep watch with Christian community in this season. Are you connected to a small group or a, a ministry team or a cohort or a deep spiritual friendship? Or are you feeling kind of alone or washed? Do you have a need there? Pay attention to what God might be saying. Finally, and most importantly, is the good news of the story. And that is that Jesus, Jesus keeps watch over us the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep keeps watch over us. Jesus had already predicted the failure of his disciples um, and he also predicted the good news that he won't deny them. That he won't leave them even if they turn their backs on Jesus. He knows that they're going to betray him, and yet he shares table fellowship with them. He knows they're going to deny him, and yet he invites them to share in this most desperate hour. Jesus doesn't focus on their failure. He's committed to being their savior, committed to his mission. He stays alert, and he keeps watch because he knows we won't always be able to. We are. I've asked Christy Nathaniel to, uh, to close the sermon time with a song, God's Highway. I just love the line in that song to, to keep watch, that admonition to keep watch, to pray. And God is the good news. He's the one who, who lights our way. Keeping watch through, through prayer and our bodies and our world in Christian community, that will help us to live more fuller lives. But our salvation 
is not dependent on our watchkeeping performance. Let me say that one more time. Our salvation is not dependent on our watchkeeping performance. Salvation is grounded in what Jesus has done. Grounded in the fact that he keeps watch over us. And that's worth rejoicing. This tiny 